0: Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day. This week, we'll hear how even before the pandemic, distance has played a key role in psychotherapy. Starting with Freud's treatments by mail, to crisis hotlines, and now mobile phones and Zoom sessions, therapy has long existed outside the doctor's office. Hannah Zevin calls it teletherapy, and she explores its history in a new book, The Distance Cure. On July 17, 2021, Zevin talked to Adam Savage about the many roles distance plays in therapy. Join us now for a conversation with Hannah Zevin.
1: Hey everybody, your local San Franciscan and former MythBuster Adam Savage here, and today we're going to be talking about teletherapy. I'm interviewing Hannah Zeven. Uh She is a lecturer in the Department of English and History at UC Berkeley. She's also a fac- uh, faculty affiliate at Berkeley's Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society, and she is the author of The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. My absolute pleasure. Uh, this book blew my mind. It, it absolutely changed the way I look at the world. And so I want to thank you up front for that. Uh, I thought that when, when COVID took hold of the world and I started Zooming with my therapist that I was encountering brave new territory. Uh, but when I read your book, I discovered that this territory of, of, of not being in person with your therapist is as old as therapy itself. That, that was maybe the most surprising revelation.
2: Yes, and it was surprising for me, too. Uh, the book, at its outset, had the aim of redescribing describing therapy uh, via its shadow form, teletherapy. And in order to do that, I had to just keep going back and back and further back until I got to Freud himself, who, it turns out, not only provided therapy via distance in the letter, but also himself made use of it. As a sort of telepatient, a proto-telepatient, and it's existed since then, since 1890.
1: Wow! So you say in the introduction that you offer that you quote offer a new history of the conventional therapeutic scenario, one that cannot be told in isolation from its shadow form, teletherapy. And just for our, I mean, I I'm a son of a therapist. I'm married to a therapist. I've been in therapy for most of my life, and before we gallop off into the weeds where this book spends most of its awesome time, Uh, I wanted to just start with the frame of what do you mean by the conventional therapeutic scenario? Let's just lay the groundwork for our audience.
2: Thanks. So the book is about what we're doing right now, right? Adam, we're not in the same room, even though maybe two years ago we would be. Mm -hmm. The, The conventional scenario is being in the room together. That is the assumed default. If you go into therapy, you're going to an office. And that has been the persistent idea. We really imagine not only the office, but maybe a white noise machine, old, uh, you know, and maybe slightly yellowing magazines, a waiting room. And the book says actually, as long as we've had that form, the conventional therapy scenario, we've also had many other kinds of mediated experiences of humans helping other humans and machines potentially helping or or claiming that they're helping humans. Uh, and that therapy at a distance has been around since Jump.
1: And when you're talking about therapy in person, you even say in the book that even in person, the conversation is mediated by culture, by expectation, by the roles that the therapist and the the, the analysis and uh, both play within the therapeutic frame. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. And also by voice, and also by money or its absence, and also by what therapists call the frame, the setting, all of those little ritualized moments uh, of greeting and saying hello, which of course we've imported right onto Zoom, even though they are different on Zoom. All of that, even in person, is media, it is mediation. Um, and so the book takes that very seriously that there's no way to have some kind of, I, I guess, pure non mediated experience of therapy because it's always
1: mediated. Well, and this is uh, this is something that I didn't realize because uh, I haven't read an academic text on therapy before, but I didn't realize. Uh, I didn't know about the frame. Can you explain the frame as it applies to therapy? Sure,
2: totally. Um, It's just that idea of uh, all of the boundaries that are set between a patient and their therapist. How much am I going to pay you? What days am I going to show up? Not Wednesday, but Tuesday at 9 a.m., not 10 a.m. For how long? Are we going to talk for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or only 30 minutes or an hour? or a double session of 90 minutes. Um, and all, you know, what what furniture is in the room? Uh, are you lying on a couch or not? Mostly not now in 2021, um, but maybe a couch uh, in 2019, pre-pandemic uh, and so on. All of those little particulars comprise the frame. And the frame is both something uh, where we have recommendations. You should do it like this. And obviously, where a patient and a therapist are going to make their own frame, their own setting together, each one individually, not just even the same between two patients. And that's very core to um, many modalities of therapy, how we show up for each other, whether in the room or not.
1: So you go back to the origins of therapy itself with Freud, and you make the case that you make the case that yeah that that freud absolutely not only redounded to teletherapy but actually utilized it as he developed his 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 theory of psychoanalysis
2: yeah so i mean it's a kind of proto teletherapy right it's happening over the letter and i just found this really Exciting, right? Uh, When when therapists right now are disparaging teletherapy, sometimes the kind of teletherapy we're doing in 2021 in the pandemic, um, as kind of lesser, not as helpful, um, they often make a joke about Freud, right? Some version of, can you imagine Freud's Zoom room? And the answer is supposed to be no, that you can't. Uh, Of course, it turns out, I think, or I'm arguing in this book, uh, yes, yes, I can imagine Freud's Zoom room. Um, Freud loved media. He used media and technology metaphorically in his work all the time. Uh, He even said uh, that uh, analytic listening and conversation is like a telephone call. So there's that always mediated bit. But he also really did use media to do therapy, Um, And I tell two stories in that chapter on Freud. The first is that Freud and his best friend, who later becomes his total enemy, um, are making psychoanalysis together, Uh, Freud as the major um, generator, but in this kind of written conversation with his best friend, Uh, and that we uh, typically think of that just as Freud musing. Uh, But I'm saying, actually, if we look at it, it's... It's an analysis. It's called, in the, the, to use your term, in the weeds, it, the, right. Um, it's called Freud's self-analysis. And I'm arguing, no, it's just Freud's analysis. And it's happening over letter, yes, with his best friend, um, for many, many years. Then Freud also goes on and treats a little kid, his only kid patient, uh, via letter writing, because the kid can't leave the house. He's agoraphobic. Uh, and I look at those two stories to say, right, as long as we've had psychoanalysis, we've also had it at a distance.
1: Well, so I want to break down this this relationship between Freud and his friend as he's writing to him, because it was fascinating to me that it's referred to as Freud's, quote, self-analysis. But when you look at it in the book, you examine it within the frame of there is, a, there is somebody who is talking and examining themselves, and there is an other that they are using as the sounding board for that. So his best friend is portraying the first therapist as Freud works out psychoanalysis. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, there's there's this idea that in part, Freud, it has to be a self-analysis because Freud is the first analyst. And so <laughs> you can't have um, Freud uh just you know uh doing it with someone else that would make in this case the buddy is named wilhelm fleece the the first analyst, and maybe maybe in a way that's the case um but I'm saying that if we look at the letters, you see that so much of what would happen in your therapy, my therapy, is also happening for Freud at the same time, it's Freud, so he's also making up this entire total system of psychoanalysis, you know. Each year, with each passing year, uh, in the letters, and it's all there.
1: And he didn't express any discomfort with the with the remove of letter writing in terms of uh, a frame he was working within, either with his friend or with uh, young Hans.
2: Yeah. So little Hans is the is the case study code name uh, for Herbert Graf, who's the little boy patient. Um, and, you know, with his best friend, there's a lot of bemoaning not being together. Uh, the problem there was not that Freud wanted to do it on letter uh, and in the postal system, but that the best friend lived in Berlin and he lived in Vienna. So they couldn't hang out all the time. They did hang out in person, but it was rare. Um, so there's a lot of saying, I really miss you. I wish we could be together but also pretending in a way that they were together, even as what was happening was they were corresponding on letter. Um, And then with little Hans, this was the only way it was going to happen. That's the experience that we're having now, not to be too presentist about it. For almost all of us who are patients, the only way we're going to have therapy right now is to do it over distance. It's a choice between doing it at all or not. And that was the case with that little boy
1: um there's a quote in uh in the early part of the book that i loved where you 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 talk about the epistolary practice the writing of the letters to each other and you say the writing of oneself relies on more than oneself becoming a collaborative project dependent on the other and one's particular relationship to that other audience over time and there's this this beautiful throughput that at its very base uh, therapy is just about the self-examination in, in a frame, within a frame. It, I, I mean, I, I almost sort of, I started out thinking I had a clear idea about what therapy was, and I finished the book actually have, feeling like I had less of a clear idea about what it is. Did did writing the book actually change your approach or your ideas about what the beast of therapy is to you?
2: Well, of course. On the one hand, uh you know, and I think this is true with any long-term project. And I was at work on this book for uh, close to a decade, right? It's a pre-pandemic book that then intersected with this very pressing set of concerns. Uh, In a way, many of my questions got answered and each answered question opened up new questions. So I thought in a way I'd be done with even just teletherapy, let alone therapy, and it turns out, if you look at my drafts uh, folder on my desktop today, that that this is not the case. Um, <laughs> there will be there will be more, yet more to say, um, and especially because I've learned a lot in the pandemic, uh, which is both reflected at the end of the book, and then uh, of course I'm still learning, and we're still in a pandemic. On the other hand, also I deal with many different kinds of therapy in this book. It is not a book about psychoanalysis. Uh, Even if part of me would have loved to just only be a Freud scholar, um, that is not what I am uh, only at all. So, you know, yes, there is a whole multiplicity of therapy, but also, you know, things that say that they're helping us, but actually are hurting us. Uh, things that are posing as therapy in our contemporary. I talk a lot about the amplification of mental health care in the book. I talk a lot about, you know, pernicious uses of technology um, that, of course, for those of us in the Bay Area, we're constantly hearing about in our new moment of the tech lash. I deal specifically with that, you know, uh, what's the sort of term, the ecosystem of teletherapy startups. Um which are many and multiple and doing really well. And there's a lot of investment. So all of that is a much uh, more, uh, let's say rich and complex picture than just, I, you know, therapy is two people talking in a room for sure. Adam.
1: <laughs> but I love, but I love the, I like this quote from Freud, um, or in talking about Freud's approach, you say attention is not medium specific. And I, I personally don't feel any difference in the therapy I've been doing with my therapist over the last 16 months. Uh, in fact, actually there's been some ways in which it's been even better, but before we, I, 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 I there's so much that. to cover. <laughs> um, I, so you moved from talking about Freud, uh, and those two stories to, uh, our, our first big international media, which was radio. Uh, and, uh, I, again, so many things I didn't know, but, the, the 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 thing that really surprised me. You talk about uh, Winnicott doing his broadcasts in England during World War II for mothers, and specifically wanting to help a nation in a deep and abiding crisis that affects every human in that nation, and that impulse within therapy to to broaden the approach to help as many people as possible. I mean, it begins with Freud. Freud also loved the idea of getting therapy out to as many people as possible, albeit potentially within some specific frames. But talk about how radio allowed, allowed different experimentations into, into getting therapy out to the masses.
2: Great. Right, thank you. So I, you know, I think it's worth saying, right, that to just hit that point, that Freud, uh, I think, is stereotyped as having only done therapy for really, really rich people. And this is a problem with therapy in general. One, that teletherapy sometimes promises to take care of. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't live up to that promise. Um, When Winnicott, among others, other psychoanalysts start hopping on the radio, uh, there is an effort to do two things. One is to greet the nation and talk to the nation. Yes, particularly for Winnicott of mothers. And there's a great book on the subject by Michal Shapira, Um, called The Warren Side, which I recommend that really deals with that kind of greeting the nation. And the other is this more, for me, uh, of interest is the teletherapeutic part, right? Which is that because of the Blitz in London, people could not meet. They just couldn't do it. (laughs) And uh, Winnicott, but many other people are trying to figure out new ways to both make, uh, to meet the patient wherever they were which was not in the consulting room, but also um, to stretch exactly what therapy might mean uh, and to send it further, to um, get it to as many people as possible. So the radio uh, emerges in the same moment as, say, group therapy, which is also this very mediated form. Uh, It emerges alongside all kinds of new interest in the advice column. Precisely because, again, you can read an advice column when you can't go into the office and so on. So all of that is the opening set of stories Um, and what it means for replicating therapy on the radio, which is very different than the letter. You have no patient. And that's a real problem for therapy. On the other hand, everyone's the patient or might be.
1: It also provides a unique opportunity to look at the components of therapy and what what survives the encounter. Right. What do people take away from it? It might not be a full therapeutic relationship, but still there is some self-examination being exhorted and tried, presumably.
2: And that that's definitely present. And also sometimes a language. Right. Which can help with self-examination. Oh, I didn't have a name for that. And now I do. Whether Mm -hmm. it's a certain kind of maternal anxiety or a worry uh, Winnicott was really good at uh, trying to help mothers be less anxious, um, or that was one of his major aims, uh, but also give them building blocks to be able to, whether it was relate to their infants better, but also to say you're good enough, right? That's a really famous Winnicott idea, the good enough mother, all of which is happening on his radio broadcast. Many more people could listen to Winnicott on the BBC, then could go see him in the consulting room in the best of times, and it was
1: the worst of times. As a public personality, I have talked about the therapy that I do on Twitter and on social media occasionally, and I'm every time I have, uh, because I like to normalize it. It's done tremendous amounts for me. I do get some clapback occasionally from people explaining that they that it feels like a rich person's cure that most people can't afford it. Um, but one of the throughputs of your book is this drive in therapists, like I just said, to 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 spread the word, to to get therapy to as many people as possible, including the quote somebody said, "There will never be enough practitioners."
2: Yeah, 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 and you know that's most literalized that kind of. Um... To my mind, it sounded, right, evangelical, like there will never be Mm -hmm. enough of us, uh, but there are so many patients to reach. Uh, Those two paths cross when I talk about the suicide hotline, um, which has its origins in sort of Protestant clergy, uh, who also were very invested in psychodynamic listening and therapeutic care. Um, And one thing that I couldn't have anticipated when I started writing the book was what I would find when I looked at the suicide hotline. And the first thing that I found is that the initial US suicide hotline was here in the Bay Area, in the Tenderloin, uh, run by a self-called, at the time, a closeted queer priest who ended up being the chairman of NPR uh, and founding media studies at UVA. Um, And so a kind of amazing story of someone Stepping away from professionalized therapy in order to offer it more fully, again, to everyone.
1: Well, and in your introduction, when you give the list of the different modalities that you look at in the book and you bring in the suicide hotlines, feminist hotlines, domestic abuse hotlines, that again was a real frame shift for me. I had never considered that to be equivalent to or to be in the same category as what I was doing with my therapist, but of course I see that it is. Um there's a beautiful story about the suicide hotline trying to find a place to do the hotline. Can you tell that story?
2: Yeah, so that same man I'm I'm just mentioning, uh the suicide hotline in the Bay Area in the Tenderloin. So this is uh in 1959, right? Um and he's going around trying to find an office and no one will rent to him. Uh in the Tenderloin. Uh wow. and he's knocking on doors, knocking on doors. And he's worried about all kinds of things. One is, right, the hotline's going to be 24 hours. That's a hallmark of the hotline. Uh, And so there are going to be people coming and going from a building at all hours of the night in the Tenderloin. Uh, He's worried that no one's going to allow for that. And he's right. No one will. And finally, he gets to a building and uh, sort of starts to explain, without saying it's going to be a hotline, what they're doing. And the, the landlord... Uh, seems kind of okay, and so Mays starts to say more and says, We're gonna be a suicide hotline the first ever. And uh, the landlord pulls up his sleeve and shows um, the scarring left over from a suicide attempt and says, Like this, and gives Mays uh, the first uh, hotline office, um, and also at half price. Um, Amazing. and therefore the suicide hotline starts. It starts when the suicide rate in San Francisco is the highest in the world outside of West Berlin, uh, which was, you know, under um, total occupation and isolation. Sorry, it was surrounded by occupation and and was completely isolated. And um, within several years, though everyone tried to shut the hotline down, the suicide rate in San Francisco was cut by half.
1: You say this about the hotline, the hotline shifts the power dynamic of the psychodynamic encounter. In the standard face-to-face encounter, the clinician asserts a technical power and maintains a a lack of particularity. Um, In the case of the crisis phone call, the lay volunteer and the client are given some of the same protections and opportunities. Can you talk about that?
2: Sure. Um, So, The way hotline calls work is that they uh, and this is true, not just on on suicide hotlines or crisis hotlines, but uh, across many, many of these forms. Right. If you call in, someone's going to pick up the phone. That's the first thing. Uh, And uh, they might say some form of a greeting. Hi. um, How can I help you tonight? This is Hannah. Um, And the caller then can go anywhere. But typically they say why they're calling. How -hmm. can I help you tonight becomes answered. And from there, right, we don't know who the caller is unless the caller gives a name. And we don't know who the um, trainee volunteer is unless they say their name and they can say Hannah or they can make up a name that's not theirs. Right. Um, So there are all these kinds of anonymity and protection. Another one, obviously, is the distance. Neither of them are in a room together. And that's equally holding both of them and protecting both uh, people. For the caller, it might be the only thing that makes it possible to imagine picking up the phone. For the volunteer, um, sometimes that protection is physical, but also allows them to do their job, right? Uh, To not be nervous in the presence of someone in crisis. And this is the sort of way hotlines work for decades. And now uh, there are some complicating factors. Some hotlines use geolocating services so that anonymity isn't really there anymore fully. Sometimes they work with the police, which, you know, actually re-endangers the caller. But in the old hotline, that was the case. It was equally held protection.
1: And and the caller can call anytime they want. Because it's manned 24 hours, it's time independent.
2: And they can stay on the phone as long as they want, and they can call as many times as they need, and someone's going to pick
1: up the phone. Well, and that was really fascinating to me was the ways in which users, I mean, when you build any, any framework, people are going to build their own framework into it. And the idea that callers of these hotlines would start calling at the same time every day to find the same practitioners – Uh, that they, I mean, that they would develop relationships in the anonymity. It was really beautiful to me.
2: Yeah. Hotline workers have shifts, right? Just like workers in general. And so if you really like voice A, but you hate voice B and you note the time, it's Saturday at 3.30 PM, you just will keep calling Adam. And so, you know, people have repeat callers, they have high frequency callers, um, And so then that question of anonymity can be negotiated. Maybe it lessens. Maybe there's a real um, deepening into particulars. And for some, the deepening into intimacy is not about saying anything more about oneself. It's just that kind of recall and recall uh, charted for sometimes across years.
1: And I also learned a term in your book I didn't know about before, but that that the softer version of a hotline is called a warm line.
2: Yes. So, and that there's also a, a, a deep history of this. There's a new book out by a colleague called Information Activism uh, from Duke Press that has uh, this great story of a lesbian warm line, uh, which comes out a couple decades after this first suicide hotline, where you can call just to chat, maybe get a referral. Um, Warm Lines still exist. They exist all over the country. And it's great. Uh, It's an amazing idea about not needing to be in crisis, but still wanting someone there and people make use of them.
1: I want to go back a little bit to radio because uh, you talked about someone I didn't know about, uh, an early uh, women's radio psychologist, Tony Grant. I love it when someone shows up and tries something, and it turns out to be the format everyone uses forever.
2: Yeah, yeah. So in that radio chapter, if the first little bit is about what's happening in England, uh, I sort of I walk through all of the different uses of psychology radio, and the last form where I stay the pen. Yeah, the last form where I stay is the radio psychologist, all the way through to Esther Perel, right? Who is Mm -hmm. our podcasting. you know, couples therapist, uh, celebrity, uh, an icon. and icon. And Tony Grant is the very first in that make uh, that I could track down. Shows up at a radio station in LA, starts taking calls, and.
1: Of course it's LA, right?
2: Of course it's LA. One thing that didn't make it into the book, uh, which I loved from that research, was about a a shrink in LA at the same time who is charging something like $300. Uh, for 15 minutes in the 70s. Um, so there's there's where people might assume, uh, and not always at all incorrectly, right? That therapy is only for the uh, extremely wealthy. Three hundred dollars for 15 minutes now. I mean, someone could do that math.
1: Is it uh, Freud? Early on, did talk about different modalities for different quote classes of people, but he really seems to have. Over the course of his life, and especially because of the world wars and the influenza pandemic, have changed his opinion about who therapy was for. Over the course of his life,
2: yeah, I mean, so this uh, Freud is nothing if not a flexible thinker. Um, what you know, some some people once they say something, they can never go back on it, and Freud was actually endlessly revising. Uh, and so, one thing, yes, as as you're saying, Adam Freud, it said at a certain point the working poor cannot be treated. After World War I, he writes this beautiful stump speech that actually now I find ever increasingly moving. It's a stump speech for psychoanalysis for the people, for therapy for all. And it happens at the first conference after the Spanish flu uh, has just begun, but after World War I, where no one has seen each other for years. And so we're all, you know, if we're lucky enough in that moment of re-greeting. And so it's that professional moment of re-greeting. And that's what he has to say. He talks about all of the accomplishments of the preceding years and ends with, um, we're going to alloy, maybe I can do this from memory, we're going to alloy the gold of psychoanalysis with the copper of suggestion, um, that we have to take our gold standard treatment And um, find other ways to be flexible so that everyone can have this. Um, And indeed, that was a huge project for Freud and the next generation after. um, And one that we need to endlessly return to because uh, it's it is still very, very difficult for people to find help that works for them uh, and also is not exorbitantly expensive in this country and beyond.
1: Um, You move from uh, the hotline chapter to a chapter on automated therapy. And I will tell you, actually, that I, as you could imagine, I loved my computer class in 1982 in Tarrytown, New York. And one of the very first things I did was I wrote a conversation, a very rudimentary conversation program with about, you know, a thousand words uh, so I could talk to my computer in basic. Uh, and I as soon as I had a computer, I was one of the first users uh, in my social group of Eliza. I loved Eliza. I loved the the computer therapist. But I had no idea how far and wide uh, automated therapy had gone. talk Let's talk about that,
2: So I'm so glad you love talking to Eliza. <laughs> you know. So who is Eliza? Eliza is the most famous therapist other than Freud maybe, who isn't a therapist, though. She, she, scare quotes, is a chat bot, and she was invented the first automated prototype for a therapist in 1966, which might be a lot earlier than folks would assume we're getting into the automation of therapy and trying to make a therapy bot. Um, Weizenbaum, her creator, was horrified by what he had wrought. <laughs> Uh, It was an accident. He had just programmed uh, this bot to show something completely else, which was that talking to machines uh, was superficial. And instead, um, everyone had your experience, Adam, or many people did. They loved talking to, quote, unquote, her. Um, There's a very infamous story uh, from the Weizenbaum moment, which is that Weizenbaum's secretary uh, demanded to be left alone with a computer as if... (laughs) you know, the computer and she were having a private therapeutic session. This really horrified Weizenbaum. Um, But ever since 1966, we've been trying to, both psychologists, uh, uh, anti-psychoanalysts, former psychoanalysts, computer scientists, uh, have been trying to sort of crack this elusive code um, to make a working uh, AI therapist. Um, You know, Google has one. Uh, there's, you know, endless apps on the iPhone or in the uh, the iTunes store or whatever that you can download that attempt to do some version of this. Um, and yeah, but it all starts really in the early 1960s, mid 1960s.
1: It's astounding. And it, it brings the question, what is it that people are getting out of this very strange modification of the therapy frame? And I was really fascinated by Charles Slack. Uh, by his research and what he found. Can we tell that story?
2: Sure. So before Eliza, um, in that sort of psychedelic early uh, moment uh, where, you know, Timothy Leary is at Harvard (laughs) and whatnot, (laughs) um, Charles Slack had this kind of Leary-esque experiment where (laughs) what he decided to do was he was going to make a sort of a tape recorder that could count how many words you spoke out loud and he handed out these uh, tape recorders to a bunch of quote unquote teenage gang members in Cambridge uh, and paid them for as many words as they spoke um, and as their tallies grew higher they got more cash uh, and this is a form of the kind of gamification of of everything but also of mental health care that we have today right there was a reward there was in-game play reward Um, And he collected the tape recorders and he was interested because it sounded like a soliloquy, like someone talking to themselves as if there were another person there and it was just cutting out all of me and then it was only Adam. Um, And also that a lot of the experimental subjects said they felt better. And so the question is why and how do we feel better even when we're not receiving anything? or not receiving what we assume uh, needs to be there for help to occur, for a cure to occur, occur for a betterment. Um, and that has been the question around the AI therapist that interests me, not whether or not they're good um, because the answer is no for many reasons, but why people experience them sometimes as quite helpful.
1: Well, and even within that frame that we've been talking about before, about therapists wanting to get the get the work out to as many people as possible, at least two of the developers of AI therapies, uh, you quote as they realize that what they're writing isn't at all what they hope to exist, but they consider it part of a stepping stone so that that can exist one day.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and I find that really uh, generous and moving, right? That there is a, an idea of pushing. Um, a stone up a hill in the service of scientific growth, but also, uh, again, this kind of, whether it's a fantasy or a reality, this kind of democratizing promise that always is escorting these experiments in teletherapy. The idea that with technology, we can reach more people. And, and we see that all the time in our present. And that that has been the sort of, uh, age-old concern that's being addressed and answered, um, whether realistically or not, by these technologies.
1: Well, I was also fascinated the connection you made between uh, AI therapy and the suicide hotlines. That at a hotline, the, the 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 practitioners are often following a script to work through the 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 caller through a crisis, as, and there's very little difference between a script and an algorithm.
2: Yes, yes. So um, the idea that, you know, a script can't help isn't necessarily the case. You know, my concerns about, um, you know, whether it's AI therapy or whatever else is is what else is happening. Um, So uh, and if the if the script works, uh, if the script is any good. And in the case of the hotline, right, one thing that's uh, important about the human there. There's many things. But one thing that is that they can revise the script. They can deviate from the script. Uh, and an algorithm cannot deviate from its script on purpose. Um, of course, there are bugs. Um, and uh, that's a feature, though, of the hotline, not a bug, is, is being able to be supple and flexible and really listen. Um, when a hotline volunteer is good, of course, that's also not guaranteed.
1: I I, I was also really... Like you talk about letter writing that um, that across time, one develops a greater intimacy with oneself as a byproduct. Uh, And the same thing seems to be happening in in automated therapy. And in fact, you even say here uh, the automation of therapy marks the collapse of the least necessary term, the therapist, into its delivery, leaving the patient alone with the medium it's a fascinating look at what, what we're actually getting out of therapy.
2: Yes. So the, the last quote you read, right. Is not a happy quote in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. I think therapists are when, again, when they're phenomenal, they're phenomenal when the help is phenomenal, it's phenomenal. And it is not something one can just do for oneself. Um, In AI therapy, What we see is is exactly that, that the kinds of therapy, the quote unquote therapy AI can offer are the kinds of therapy where the therapist doesn't really have to be there. Um, And that, you know, we know that we can feel better when we write in our diary. We know from Charles Slack that we might feel better (laughs) when we talk into a tape recorder or an audio message uh, or, you know, a notes function on the on the smartphone. Um, but therapy is of depth uh, and insight. psychodynamic therapy is not just about feeling better. It's about actually understanding why one wasn't feeling okay and gaining not just a purchase on a history of a person, but also you know tools to deal with it in the moments that it comes up. And those are not the kinds of things that are on offer from even the most charming of chatbots, like Eliza.
1: And I really love the story about Colby at Stanford. Can you talk about that?
2: So if, if on the one hand, Weizenbaum is no technology ever, Colby is that uh, prototypical idea of um, let's use technology to solve this. Uh, techno-optimism or, um, you know, but, but uh, here with therapy, like therapy will solve the, the practitioner crisis. Uh, technology will solve the practitioner crisis. We'll be able to have as many as we need. Colby is out here at Stanford. He is a psychoanalyst who turns his back on psychoanalysis, like many of the characters in the second half of my book. Um, And he sets out to build essentially Eliza. But he calls it, and this is the misstep, he calls it shrink. And he really, he ends up making a chatbot that no one has a good time with. Uh, and so people don't want to use it. And you know, there has been a lot written about these therapeutic uh, artifacts, these, these little pieces of code. And one thing I'm keenly interested in is why did we have to enjoy it? What is pleasure uh, with Eliza that you had, Adam, but also uh, Weizenbaum's secretary? What does pleasure have to do with it? Because I bet if you've been in therapy and you think about it, it wasn't very necessarily pleasurable even if it was playful, even if it was intimate. But enjoyability is probably not the term that comes to mind for most folks. Uh, And here in AI, uh, again, that's my argument, that we see those early moves to gamification really early on, having to Mm -hmm. do with keeping someone coming back for quote-unquote rewards. And one of the rewards is, of course, pleasure.
1: Uh, I'm curious uh, if... I'm assuming you tried many automated therapies. I'm curious if any of them surprised you in a positive or negative way. You
2: know, uh, I still, following Sherry Turkle, who wrote a lot about Eliza, and Sherry Turkle, I love this in her book, Life on the Screen, she had her students every single year use Eliza and watched how the students at MIT shifted their reactions to using a chatbot um, I've had students play around with these different uh, more obviously gamified therapies, and no, I think that unfortunately they're not, they're not surprising in either direction because they are doing exactly that. They're trying to entrain the user to come back to use the thing, to generate more data via like whether it's a cute pink screen or a penguin avatar or whatever. Um, what what does always surprise me is how individuals feel about it, and that's really the focus for me is looking at how patients, or now we call them users, suddenly uh, feel about these modalities uh, in their life and the role of these kind of apps and previously, you know, hotlines and and so on.
1: Well, and this is the thing I felt I actually. I actually wrote it down after the first, after reading the first third of the book, but it's the thing that I felt was the most lovely spine of the entire, of the entire book, which is I've read some academic writing. I read a lot of abstracts while hosting Mythbusters and scientific papers to, to, to familiarize myself with stuff. And one of the things that academic writing can do is it can be, end up being completely divorced from its subject in the coldest way imaginable. And, in reading your examination of each of these modalities and what it can teach us about therapy, I got this understanding that for you, therapy is still this big mystery, that there's still all of these facets to the landscape of therapy that we don't understand, and that it is still, uh, there are still so many unanswered questions. And I always find that landscape a much more uh, welcoming and, 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 and fascinating landscape.
2: Thank you so much for saying that. Um, yeah, I mean, because therapy is fascinating to me precisely because on the one hand, in each of its little modalities, it has so many particular formal components. But also therapy is an aperture onto how we talk and hang out and live and communicate just generally. And so thinking about you know mediated therapy, teletherapy, Uh, in our, you know, what's called this increasingly technologized, and then the pandemic hit, increasingly technologized life. uh, And, you know, for the last 18 months, since March 13th, 2020, for me, increasingly distanced life um, has been really rewarding uh, to sit and think through the contradiction of what I call in the book, distanced intimacy, which isn't always um, intimacy in the warm and fuzzy sense, but sometimes intimacy in the kind of violent, uh, Overknown sense, uh, and humans, and and you know the mind and relationships are. I mean, they are a really huge topography
1: filled, of course, with mystery. This and th- there also ends up being this other throughput to the book, which is. And I didn't realize this was a very American frame to think of technology as a thing that separates us and isolates us. Um, but you repeatedly re- come back to the argument that it's actually regularly doing the opposite.
2: Yeah. And I think, right. So when I wrote the book, all except for the coda, which is yeah. about COVID-19, it's about the uprisings of last summer and this sort of moment where if teletherapy was therapy shadow form for 120 years, now it's flipped. You know, in-person right. therapy is now the shadow, uh, and it's happening, uh, which we Great. can talk about. And people are going back to the office, um, and some people were in their offices the whole time, even though there were public health mandates against it. Um, but, you know, I think many of us now have a, have a textured, daily, quotidian sense that in, uh, again, given the choice between distanced communication and nothing— we will cho- we will choose to communicate, and then additionally, some of us prefer it, and that might be a problem uh, in many cases, right? I think a lot of us have big anxiety about the reopening up of life if we're so lucky to have that happen again. Uh, vaccination being a major part of that, but not only. And on the other hand, uh, sometimes it really can be the correct choice uh, or the choice that is actually working better and is not just about soothing and anxiety. So I'd be interested, I mean, one day, if not now, to her for you, Adam, when you said it was almost the same or it was the same, Zoom and the room, I think a lot of patients have had that experience and also a lot of therapists
1: too. I've actually found that in a couple of Really important ways in this last year. I've had a couple of experiences in therapy that were that couldn't have happened in the in the therapy office. Uh, in one, I felt activated in the moment that therapy was beginning, and the therapist said, um, "Maybe you want to go." Uh, I was in my shop. He said, "Maybe you want to go put on a coat that feels good to you to put on." And I had never considered doing that as a soothing mechanism, and I went and got this coat that is one of my favorite coats, and I put it on, and I realized, oh my God, right. I've spent my whole life building armor to shield myself in. Clearly, this has a psychological root that somehow has never occurred to me until this moment.
2: That's incredible that that the coat got to be like your spacesuit. Um, yeah, yeah and and provide that for you. and also that the therapist was glued into that and could offer that to you or suggest it.
1: I'm sure people are studying this right now. There, uh, there, uh, there must be studies going on about the difference and what, what might be. Because I've also found that there are ways in which I get mad, that I've been getting mad in therapy or angry about things in my life, that I'm way more demonstrative about it with the distance of a computer than I would be in the room.
2: Well, right. So that goes back to that history of the hotline, right? Mm-hmm. That people only sometimes feel safe at a distance to really express what's going on. And part of that is that if if one is, you know, polite and doesn't want to be mad in front of another, um, well, now you're in front, but not in the same room as a person. And right, there's a lot more flexibility and perhaps even freedom to really come out and um, say what's on one's mind or on one's chest. You know, there's a patient in my book who, sought out on purpose e-therapy in the early 1990s, way before this was even something on anyone's radar, and found a, a therapist willing to do it. And they had email therapy for years, and finally she went into the office and hated it. She had known this person on email for years. She had finally convinced her to come in and went right back to email because it was exactly that for her. Right? She didn't feel paradoxically held enough in the room. She needed to be safe because of what distance was doing and providing. Um, I think we're gonna see a lot of that question as therapists and patients renegotiate where they meet, and if it's a
1: choice. So you described the, the, the cultural idea that technology separates and divides us as an American uh, American way of looking at it. I I, I didn't realize. Uh, just because I hadn't even thought about the question, but are there other potentially more useful ways that other cultures embrace this technology that we're not? So
2: again, the book is not the book is not somehow whole, wholesale pro teletherapy, and definitely not wholesale pro technology. I'm very concerned about the current ecosystem of teletherapy startups as well as AI apps. Um, but it is, it is this paradoxical American formation, right, where the thing that reaches out and lets us touch something, right, the old at and slogan, is also the thing that's atomizing us and keeping us apart. Uh, and we just have this real focus uh, pervasive in the culture of saying, well, it's the screen. And one argument I have in the book is, well, screens definitely are doing something, but what about everything else? Uh, what about the what about something larger than just uh, the screen? What is the screen a symptom for? What is it screening out? Um, and of course, there are places where technology, uh, like, has been used with teletherapy, and it is the dominant form. Uh, thinking about countries like Australia, right, where there's a just totally different geographical landscape, um, where it's not thought of as as the shadow form. It's just what it is for most people. So there are many other situations. And I start in Vienna, but really the second whole half of the book is in the U.S. And trying to look at that paradox about the thing that holds us apart that's also supposed to bring us together.
1: Well, let's talk about the coda. Uh, One of the blurbs on your book uh, is from Jameson Webster. He says... uh... In a world of overmediated hypercommunication that has left us all feeling adrift and isolated, Zevens, the distance cure gives us the history that we need to catch up with our future. So our future sure as hell caught up with us uh, <laughs> 18 months ago, and I mean there's so m- we'll be unpacking for generations what the lessons of COVID-19. Um, but one of the things I am most fascinated by is the way in which it provides a kind of an incredible control. Uh, of behavior, of isolation, of all the things that we did to survive it, and then what we noticed coming out of it. So I'm curious about the ways in which COVID uh, confirmed, confounded, uh, and illuminated what you had been writing for ten years uh, when it hit.
2: Yeah. So I mean, we're we're still in process, right? I think one question is going to be how much we do take on and learn from the pandemic as opposed to immediately put it in a kind of um, memory hole, which has happened so much with so much traumatic history in this country, right? With instead of unpacking and uh, working through it, it just goes away. So we, we, that will be uh, remain to be seen. Uh, and there are lots of people, of course, who are actively trying to prevent that from happening uh, to really mourn all that we've lost, uh, both in terms of human life of course, and also in terms of time and a sense of of any kind of normalcy for for just about everyone. Um, The book had this assumption, right? Again, which is this shadow form. It did not assume that if we were doing teletherapy, we were also doing tele-everything else. (laughs) And and that is what has really uh, been the case. And so when people complain about Zoom fatigue, which I am one of those people, Um, It was really interesting to talk with therapists uh, over the course of the last 18 months, some of whom immediately just switched to the phone and the problem went away. Again, Mm. the problem isn't the distance necessarily. It might be a particular platform, it might be blue light, or it might be this kind of always-on work that happened over the last 18 months and and had happened before. Uh, And so trying to think about those forms. I was fascinated that many, many of the patients and the therapists I spoke to felt like you, that there was almost no difference. Uh, That did shock me because so many of the other cases about teletherapy in the book is about difference. Mm -hmm. It's not saying teletherapy and therapy are the same, but a lot of people experienced that. The other shock was that some folks said that teletherapy was paradoxically more intimate. Uh, precisely because of technologies like uh, the noise cancelling headphone, which puts the patient's voice in their ear, in their brain. Uh, one, one therapist went so far as to say it was like uh, telepathy, which is a little Easter egg in the book. I have all these different yeah. slips between telepathy and teletherapy. Um, yeah. So the, all of that was surprising for sure.
1: I loved. I think it's Una Goralnik saying that um, she was doing therapy with people in their pajamas. It felt like she was in their bedroom with them because she was.
2: Yes, yes. So Orna of uh, Couples Therapy, the Showtime show, which is fantastic and is, uh, I think, filming its third season uh, right now. You know, so Dr. Goralnik had many experiences. One is she was already doing this mediated therapy to the nation called
1: Couples Therapy, the show which I loved and was obsessed with, but, and obsessed with, by the way. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and so there, there is another season coming. Don't don't fear. Um, and I've written a little bit about that show for the Los Angeles Review of Books and and also sort of deal with this there. But then suddenly in the second season, COVID happens, and now you still have a TV show, but it's filming Zoom therapy sessions for part of it. Um, and on the one hand, right, it gets really intimate. Like you were talking about uh, the, you know, idea of, um, getting more expressive, say, uh, on the other hand, it can get, um, uh, underutilized. Like, uh, Orna has this couple who just starts to ignore her the minute she's on the Zoom therapy because she can't physically get to them. And that was the only way previously she had gotten them to listen to her was really by getting in their face, um, but yeah there are bedroom scenes there are babies i mean because again it's not just teletherapy it's teletherapy plus pandemic no childcare um anxieties pajamas for everyone who's uh uh staying home and not an essential worker and so on
1: i think it's it's worth pointing out that the that what we're dealing with isn't everyone trying to figure out how to do therapy in the crisis of COVID, but the fact that everyone was trying a million different versions of it, that it wasn't the how, it, it, it wasn't the whether or not it could happen, it was all the different ways in which it did happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. My favorite story of that kind of really moving, creative ingenuity of care in the truest sense, you know, really is throughout the whole book uh, what people do when they can't do it one way. They many people are going to find another that that does work or does something was from a a dear friend, Eric Linsker, who is a psychotherapist practicing in Brooklyn, New York. He sees a lot of children and so was was really a little bit worried about what to do with kids in Zoom, Mm -hmm. kids who need parents to set up the call, kids who uh, maybe have very little computer experience, even if they have a lot of iPad experience. One thing that he found was uh, a challenge or was going to be a challenge was how do you do play therapy and draw with them? And he used the Zoom whiteboard to do a drawing game, just as he would have done a piece of paper in the consulting room, right? So everyone really who, who could started to try out new things that worked just as well, sometimes better. And of course, sometimes there were failures, glitches, dropouts. Um, and that too is part of human life.
1: My biggest takeaway, I think, from from reading the book is that if someone is out there and needs help, there is someone else who's trying to figure out a way to get help to them.
2: And the question is, what happens in between? Right. And the, the other question is, when is help not helpful? When is it harmful? And these are the textures, right? The questions for why isn't it just a good idea to make something totally accessible well, what if the thing you're accessing is no good? And these are, these are the major questions facing us, especially in the kind of Silicon Valley landscape as we, as we exit the pandemic, hopefully one day, and enter into the next period.
1: Hannah, it's a wonderful book. I really appreciate that you wrote it. And thank you for talking to me today. It's been really illuminating. Thank, thank you. Thank you
0: so much, Adam. You've been listening to Hannah Zeven, author of The Distance Cure, a History of Teletherapy, in conversation with Adam Savage. This program was recorded on July 17th, 2021. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate goldstein Breyer and Holly mulder wallen Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Juliette gelfman Rondazzo is Associate Director of Communications and Digital Media. The Post-Production Director is Nina Thorson. The Sidney Goldstein Theater Director, Stephen Eckert. The Recording Engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The Founding Producer is Sidney Goldstein. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by the Wallace Alexander Gerbode Foundation, the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures. Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Minor. To attend a live program, see who's coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.
1: Special thanks to Ann Oyama for making our programs possible as we shelter in place at home.